0: So in order, in order to avoid being parched, I took a sip of my water, which unfortunately I realized that it was—it is um, not regular water. This is coconut water, and I feel like I just drank suntan lotion. Um, <laughs> which seems to lead well to our series in Habakkuk when life doesn't make sense and is not fair and suffering and all that other kind of stuff. So if you'll turn to the book of Habakkuk chapter 3 where we continue. This morning our reading will be from Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. The word of God. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigonoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman. And the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, light rays that flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, "'Calling for many arrows, you split the earth with rivers. "'The mountains saw you and writhed "'with the raging waters swept on. "'The deep gave forth its voice. "'It it lifted its hands on high. "'The sun and moon stood still in their place "'at the light of your arrows as they sped "'at the flash of your glittering spear.' You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret." You trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come to consider this word that you have recorded for us, we do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, you would open our minds as well, that we may not only learn what you have done in previous days, but that we would be able to see how you are at work and be able to understand how you are at work even in our day and in our lives. Father, we come not for an intellectual exercise, but we come to be renewed in our spirit, to be given hope, to be made whole. and We come to you, O oh Lord, because you are the one who can do it. And by your spirit and word, you shape and you renew, and you make us like new as you make us like Christ. We pray that you would use this time that we consider your word as part of the way that you shape us. Renew our minds, and therefore our hearts, that we may trust you, praise you, and live in peace. We pray all of this in the name of Christ and based on his promises and all promises in him. Amen. The Russian novelist, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, while in exile, offered his assessment of Western culture. He said, in one of his points of assessment, hastiness and superficiality are the psychic diseases of the 20th century. I'm not sure exactly what he means, but I got the impression that he wasn't particularly pleased with the culture that he saw. That we tend to be a very expectant people in the West, and we are impatient when we don't get what we want, when we want it, exactly the way we want it. And we are willing to settle for things that are perhaps not their best, because we want things, and we want things fast. Another Russian offered his critique as well of Western culture, but with a totally different spirit, rather than being a novelist, it was a comedian Yakov Smirnov who was popular a couple of years ago, right after the Cold War, and most of his routine was to uh, always ended by saying, what a country, and he would just share his observations of the cultural changes, or cultural differences between what he had experienced growing up in the Soviet Union and now having come particularly to the United States. His observation is not entirely different from Solzhenitsyn's because he does, at least in one of his routines, recognize just the, that what has conditioned us to be such an impatient people. And he talked at one time about the first time that he remembers going through a grocery store here in the United States. He said that he went up one aisle and he was amazed because he saw something called powdered soup. And he picked it up and looked at the label and he was amazed because in his home growing up, Soup took labor. It took a lot of labor. The idea that you just add water, hot water, and you had, a, had soup, it struck him. He, he was impressed. He went a few aisles down, and he saw there that there was powdered milk. Something that's a liquid, and you just add water, and somehow it becomes milk again. It was intriguing to him how that would, uh, that would be something that a product had. He went further down in that same aisle and saw powdered breakfasts. He realized that not only could you pour water in and instantly have lunch or dinner with a soup, or pour water in and instantly have milk, now you could actually pour water in and have an entire breakfast. And he he's just stood amazed. And he said it was a few minutes later he got down to the other end of the store and he wasn't looking for anything in particular, but he noticed baby powder. And he just declared, What a country! <laughs> I think Yakov Smirnov's observations kind of drive home the point that we are a people who do have almost everything at our fingertips at least as it goes to food but we are reminded from time to time that not everything comes instantly and no more than babies does spiritual maturity and spiritual depth come instantly or simply by adding water and whether Habakkuk was learning that for the first time or whether we are getting to see how God works in his people as we see Habakkuk here in this text or really throughout this book. What we are witnessing is the transformation that took place in this priest, this prophet that had been serving God as God was taking him from a place of lamentation, a place of complaining and frustration to a point of depth and substantive faith. As we've looked at this book, we've noticed that in chapter 1, in the prayer that Habakkuk raises up, Habakkuk was kind of grumbling and he was complaining and he's asking God, how long, O oh Lord? Now, a reasonable question because he was observing in his own country the people of God were turning from God, taking him for granted and following whatever ways they thought were appropriate. Whatever they thought was right, that's what they were doing. And consequently, he was praying for renewal and revival in his own land. This priest and this prophet wanting to see God do something because God seemed to be strangely silent and strangely absent. And then as we've seen, as God answered him and responded and said, here's the plan. I'm not absent and I'm not unaware, but I'm going to be raising up the Chaldeans or which was uh, one of the, from an area of Babylon, the Babylonians, and they're going to come and they're going to wipe out my people, sending them fully into exile. And Habakkuk then was perplexed Not only had God been silent, but God's answer was more difficult to swallow, and Habakkuk was wrestling God with this. But as we come to this text now, we see that Habakkuk has shifted. We see Habakkuk is no longer one who is complaining, no longer one who is grumbling, not even one who is particularly worried. But we see in this passage, particularly in verse 2, that Habakkuk is now in awe and reverence about our God. Verse two, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and we, we need to learn as we look at this passage and look at Habakkuk as a whole and look at our own lives that a genuine fear of God is the necessary starting place if we are going to be able to deal with the problems that we experience in this life. A genuine fear of God is absolutely essential for us. Now, the question is, what does it mean to fear God? Now, some of us are familiar with the writings of C.S. Lewis, particularly the Chronicles of Narnia, and we get the idea in that. Most of you are probably familiar with the dialogue that took place as Susan um, meeting up with um, Mr. Beaver and being informed of Aslan, who was the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Mr. Beaver beginning to explain who Aslan is, and Susan is not really contemplating that. And when Mr. Beaver tells her that he is a lion, Susan asks, Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, Safe, no. But he's good. In other words, conveying through this children's literature is the idea that something that is glorious, something that is good, can also be something that is very dangerous and certainly is not tamed. We understand that even in our own lives with things like fire and water. I mean, fire which brings us warmth and fire which is necessary to cook and to purify also destroys homes and lives, entire forests and entire cities at times. And water which is necessary to our very essence even more than food, well, All you have to do is look at the news when a hurricane comes in and recognize that that same element can wipe out and destroy whole regions of whole countries. They're good, they're necessary, they're pleasant, and yet they are powerful and are not to be trifled with. And so these are just elements, whether through literary or through our own experience, that we know of, that we are drawn to, that we need, that we desire, and that bring us much comfort. But at the same time, the power must be respected, and they are just mere reflections of the reality of God. And yet too often, perhaps it's true in Habakkuk's time, but certainly is true in our time, is we become so comfortable with the ideas of God, so emphasizing the reality that God reminds us that he is loving us, that we lose sight of his power and that he is to be feared and that he is fearsome. Here we see Habakkuk coming to understand that he is contemplating God. And it's that contemplation, that, that fear of God, that begins to make a transformation. The one who had been complaining and grumbling now has had his eyes open and he's beginning to see God as the God of the universe. He is in control of all things He is working out his purposes, and his purposes are perfect, even when they don't make sense to Habakkuk. And so moving from one who is complaining, Habakkuk moves in in this prayer, which is actually a song. We have indications from this text that this this song is is actually not just a prayer, but it's a prayer that was sung. We see it in the opening verse in chapter 3 when it says that this is the prayer, according to Shigenoth, Shigonoth was a, a kind of an unusual or a, a rare musical term that denotes a musical structure, usually for prayer or, or for worship. We see it in the body of this prayer because the word selah is used frequently or three times we see even in this relatively short passage. It's a word that if you're a Bible student, you're familiar with, you've seen a number of times when you read the Psalms, the Psalms themselves are a hymn book. It's a musical directory. Most people as scholars assume that the word Selah is there as a reminder that as the congregation was singing and praying through the Psalms, they need to stop at that point and just contemplate. What is it I just said? We, again, in our instant instant culture, we want to sing through our songs. We want to rush through. And a lot of times we don't think about what it is we just said. And therefore, we are robbed of the possibility of experiencing certain truths about God because we're not stopping and thinking about what it is that we're saying. And the word Selah here is an indication that Habakkuk, as he was praying, as he was singing, would stop and, as this was recorded, would ask others that would read this prayer and stop and think for a moment what it is that he is saying at each of these points in his prayer. And then we see even at the very end of this book, in the last verse, the last lines say, to the choir master with the stringed instruments. And so usually if you're writing something and going to hand it off to the choir master, it probably has something to do with singing. And so we see here that, uh, that uh, Habakkuk had moved from being one who was complaining and now was one who was singing the praises of God. And the question that we then ask ourselves is this, what is it that took place? How did this transformation take place in this man? To go from somebody who was fearful who was concerned, who was griping, to one who is singing the praises of God. We see the answer in this text, really in two different ways as we take a step back and look and consider what uh, what God is saying through Habakkuk here. There's two life-changing responses to adversity that we see indicated in this particular prayer, or by this particular prayer, maybe a better way of putting it. The first one that we need to see is this, is that we need to learn from Habakkuk that we need to shift our focus from our circumstances to God's character. We see in verse 2 that Habakkuk is reconsidering his circumstances. Again, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your works, O Lord, do I fear. In other words, he's saying, okay, Lord, this is what I, I know about you. And Lord, you've told me what your plan is. It's an interesting phrase that he uses there when he says, okay, I've heard about you, I know about you, but your your plan, I I fear. The question is, what does he mean by fear in this context? In one sense, he may simply mean awe, similar to the whole concept of Aslan, knowing that God is powerful, and that as God has laid out the plan that he has, that Habakkuk is standing amazed and saying, I don't know why I missed or mistrust God, who is in control of all things, has reason for everything he's doing. And as he's laid it out, I'm just in awe of how he is going to work out his purposes. I think that that's certainly a component of what Habakkuk is saying, but I think that it... If I was to limit it to that, I I think I'd be missing a very human element that is true of Habakkuk. And just because Habakkuk was a prophet and a priest doesn't mean that he was unlike us. And I put myself in Habakkuk's shoes, and I know the plan that God is planning for that he's already laid out. Uh, My fear is not going to be merely reverence. My fear is, God, I'm afraid. I don't like this. This plan of yours seems like it's going to hurt everything that I hold dear, everything that I have been a part of, everything. Your whole people, the whole nation is going to be overwhelmed. My house, my home, my family, all will be displaced. I I don't know about you, but if somebody was to tell me about that, that would be a reason for me to fear. I'm afraid. And I suspect that that was part of what Habakkuk was saying as he was saying, Lord, I've heard about you, and so I know about you, and I know what I know. And I know that you're good. And I know that you're in control. And I know that you are working out your plans, and that your plans are good. But God, your plan is making me very uncomfortable. I think that for many of us, we are living in that situation when we look at the climate of the world the climate of our culture. We forecast into the future, though we can't see any further into the future than anybody else can. And many of us live with the fear, having not been told what God's plan is. So we're left to simply surmise, but we can identify with whatever emotions that Habakkuk was experiencing at this time. And I suspect that it was the reverent awe for God, as well as the experience of fear. But that makes what Habakkuk was experienced all the more amazing. Because essentially what's happening here is Habakkuk is saying, as we look at the end of verse 2, he says, in the midst of the years, revive your plan, revive it. In the midst of the the years, make it known, and in wrath, remember mercy. I think what Habakkuk here is saying, Lord, I know that you're good, and I'm going to trust you. And I want your plan to go forward. Lord, your will, not my will, be done. As a reflection and a foreshadow of Jesus who in the garden. Saying if there was any other way. To fulfill your purpose. To glorify your name. Let's go with the other plan B. But if there's not. Lord, even though this is going to hurt. Even though it's going to cause anguish. Your way is right. Right. Your way is good. Essentially what we have through this passage, particularly from verses 3 through 15, is Habakkuk, in order to overcome his own fears of of the coming invasion, he's reminding himself of what he knows about God. He's rehearsing God's history, God's faithfulness to God's people. Bible scholars call this passage the great theophany because of the imagery that Habakkuk is using here, of the imagery of God that put in visible terms, theophany means the manifestation of God who is a spirit, and yet in very tangible ways. And that's what Habakkuk is doing here. And we see in in verses 3 through 7, Habakkuk is referring to using the imagery of the exodus, reminding himself, and therefore all who would end up reading this after him, of God's faithfulness in the Exodus, even though the people experienced hardship and difficulty leading up to the Exodus, they experienced it in the Exodus. Nevertheless, God continued to be very faithful to his people. He preserved them, and Habakkuk was a living testimony to that because the nation of Israel had been established, and Judah had been established, and Habakkuk had grown up. The promise of God to create a nation and to give them a place of their own, Habakkuk had grown up in that, and even though that was being threatened and being jeopardized, the faithfulness of God had been proven Through the Exodus.
1: And then in verses
0: 8 through 15, Habakkuk is using poetic language to refer to God as a divine warrior. And he's saying, God has his purpose, nothing overcomes God. And he uses warrior language about God as God goes and waylays the nations, that there's nothing that can stand up to our God. And so Habakkuk is just rehearsing and reminding himself this is who God is, and God is committed to his purposes. And his purposes will be done. We need to see in this particular text that the thing that helped Habakkuk in the time of perplexity in the midst of his own fear was shifting his focus away from his present circumstances, which had not changed. In fact, they had become all the more highlighted. What he feared might happen, God had validated. In fact, perhaps he had had a fear that something bad would happen, and God said, this is what's going to happen. It was worse than he might have feared. I mean, it couldn't be worse. The country you know. The people you know are going to be overrun. Life as you know it is going to be over. There's Not a whole lot that would seem to be worse in this life than to be given that kind of news. And yet we see Habakkuk making the transition of one who was clearly frustrated and angry to one who seems resigned and yet and, and re- reverent about what God is doing here. The reason we need to see that Is because the hope that you and I long for and the hope that you and I need is found in the same way. It's found in our knowledge of God and who God is and what God has done. It's found in the knowledge of his faithfulness to Israel, which is recorded throughout all of the Old Testament and fulfilled in the promise of the coming of Christ. It's found in our own personal experiences. God has been faithful and brought us through many trials and storms in our own lives. I mean, think about it for just a moment. What were the storms in your life, the ones that were certainly going to do you in? You were undone. Life would go no more. For some of us, I can remember 20 years ago. Or 10 years ago. Or 5 years ago. Or last year. I mean, what were the storms that were so threatening that it was, all, you were done. And for many of us, we have to rack our brains to remember. And Some of us, they're very vivid, and we can remember them, and we can see them, but one thing that I know for certain, you got through them. How do I know? Well, you're sitting here. I don't have to be very smart to figure that one out. I mean, if you thought you were dead 20 years ago, and you're sitting here, something didn't happen that you were expecting it to happen. Whatever those things that were threatening you, God, in his preservation, And his faithfulness has brought you through storms. And you have them in your own life to be recounting and to be thinking about God's faithfulness. Recorded in scripture, recorded in your own diary. Something Habakkuk only had to look forward to but didn't have to look back to, you and I have, is the cross. Where all of our sin was placed upon the person of Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans 8.32 says this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It's a reminder as Paul's considering back to what God has done in the cross despite the trials not only that Paul had experienced but was in the midst of experiencing. He's reminding us that in the cross we see the ultimate expression of God's faithfulness that not only forgave us but it is the hint of the promises of God's goodness and love and promise to enable us to be preserved that we will not be Destroyed, as individuals as God's church and yet many of us find it difficult to believe these promises we know we ought to and that may be because of unfaithful people in your own lives too many of our lives our parents may not have been faithful or encouraging therefore we find it difficult to trust others in other lives, it may have been a close friend or a spouse, and consequently, we come up with our own ideas. We're not going to trust anyone anymore, and not even God, but we, need to, but we don't find the peace in that. We might find the absence of some pains that we might otherwise experience, but when you numb yourself off to the possibility of pain, you also are no longer able to experience the fullness of joy. And we need to see in Habakkuk's experience, it's not the absence of pain, but it's the promises of God. For others of us, we might find it difficult because we feel like God has not been fair to us. We look around at other people and see what is going on in their lives and feel like we deserve better. And yet we know that that's not a healthy way of looking at things. No doubt Habakkuk could have claimed that. But Habakkuk, who was righteous, a faithful, a good priest, who was called to be a prophet, was interceding for his people to God, as God is speaking to him, he reorients his thoughts. He could have claimed, this isn't fair, I don't deserve this. There's a number of us that are faithful, but recognizing that we're all broken. He clings to the promise of God's goodness. He's reminded that in this life, Christians are not promised that we won't experience difficulties and hardship, nor is the message of Habakkuk that Christians don't have questions or doubts or fears. The message of Habakkuk is that we do But to overcome them, we need to be willing to look at God for who God has revealed himself to be and to gauge our circumstances through that lens rather than to gauge God on the basis of our circumstances. The second thing that we need to do as we look at this that we see from Habakkuk or that we need to learn from Habakkuk is this, is that we need to shift our focus from our purposes to the purposes of God. The first point is that we shift our focus from our present circumstances to what God is doing or to the faithfulness of God. Now we also need to lift a shift from what I want, what you want, and ask what is it that God wants. See, as long as Habakkuk was focusing his attention on his own welfare, and he was evaluating very real circumstances according to his own grid, he was miserable. But as we see here, as he's wrestled over time with what God is doing, and he began to focus more on God's character, and then God's purposes, and God's desires... He was not only set free, he was being transformed. Or maybe he was transformed, and that was allowing him to be set free. Again, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your works, Lord, or do I fear? And then there's almost a but, even though I'm afraid. In the midst of the years, revive it. In other words, again, not my will, but your will be done. Earlier, Habakkuk would have been praying. Lord, change your mind. Do something different. Don't let your people, or me, experience this kind of difficulty and hardship and pain. But now in humble submission and freedom, he says simply, in your wrath, remember your mercy. Do your will. It's easy for us to say that, but it's not easy for us to do what Habakkuk is doing here. One of the reasons is, like Habakkuk, most of us are relatively myopic, and we have a difficult time seeing beyond our own circumstances. We're blind to anything that might be in the background, and we don't tend to think, first and foremost, what is it that God might be doing. We just think of ourselves or those we love in our present circumstance, and how can we get out of the bad ones, or... How can, we avoid, uh, how can we avoid them or how can we shift into something that's good? And we need to recognize that Habakkuk is recorded here. Habakkuk was called because he reflects our myopic view. We also need to realize that there is a teaching that we buy into, whether we theologically do or uh, would claim it or not, which suggests to us that the purpose of life, the promise of God to those who belong to him is that God's job is to make our lives as comfortable and easy and peaceful as possible from the point that we chose him to the point that we go to see him when things move from being wonderful to being perfect. Now, very few of us, and if you've been in this church for very long, we realize theologically we don't buy that So therefore, you have making a theological choice to be in a church that doesn't preach that trash. (laughs) Almost, but not quite. Um, But as much as I recognize as heretical and as passionate as I am opposed to that message, it is amazing how much I believe that message. In my own suffering, hardship, or even the possibility of suffering. I don't even, things could be going great, but if it looks like the storm cloud is coming, I get antsy because I buy it. I believe it functionally, even though I deny it intellectually and theologically. And so it makes it difficult when we see real circumstances that are threatening to our lives to move away from our myopia because. Well, at least for me, it's because I'm basically self-centered. And through Habakkuk, we recognize that we are called to God's purpose. Now, what is God's purpose? Well, God's purpose is God's glory. He loves himself more than he loves you. But because he loves himself more than he loves you is what enables him to be trusted and to be rejoice in the love that he has for you because it reminds us that God loves what is ultimate which is himself the difference between God loving himself and you and I loving ourselves as ultimate is that God is God and you and I are not God is perfect and God is holy what else should he love if he loves something more than himself then it means something else is greater and worthy of our attention we should just go right past God and love what that God loves above all because God is perfect and right and loves himself and his purposes and his purposes to glorify his name, the fact that he then loves us is part of his own glory. It's part of his own purpose. It's an expression of that and it gives us reason to trust. He's not loving us because he gets something from us. He's loving us because he's chosen to love us. And God's purpose is his own glory and as difficult as it is for us sometimes to hear that, that is our hope and our benefit. But because God's... He is focused on his own glory. He's working things out in a way that you and I may not understand. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to participate in a uh, was a, a graduate program uh, called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement.
1: And it's an extensive
0: reading list in in that class because again, it's a graduate level course. But one of the things that stuck out there was an article that I read by uh, Ralph Winter uh, that was. Um, titled, The Kingdom Strikes Back, Ten Epics in Redemptive History. I know it sounds like exciting reading for you, but that's... Um, <laughs> but while the overarching article and showing what God had done in different periods of history itself is amazing, there was one point in history that, that just has consistently, constantly stuck with me. And it was a period right after Western Europe had become Christianized, and almost no sooner had Western Europe, particularly Great Britain, the the Celtic areas become Christianized, that the pagan Vikings raided. Now, we've cleaned the Vikings up quite a bit in our culture. Safe mascot. The Nazis had nothing on the Vikings nobody had anything on the Vikings. They were some of the most despicable, heinous, vicious, brutal people who have been in the face of the earth. And they came down from Scandinavia and they raided these Christian villages in Western Europe, particularly what's now in England and in Ireland. And they came in and they began killing all of the men and the teenage boys, raping and pillaging the women. Some of them decided that they would stay put and live and take over the land and the houses of the people they had just killed, and others decided they missed home, so they grabbed the women and they took their boats and went back into Scandinavia. One historian writes uh, writes this about that episode in history. The Norsemen cease not to slay and carry into captivity the Christian people, to destroy churches and to burn the towns. Everywhere there is nothing but dead bodies clergy and laymen, nobles and common people, women and children, there is no road or place where the ground is not covered with corpses. These are God's new people. And yet as the historian goes on and says, but despite what people might think, historian Christopher Dawson puts it, the unparalleled devastation of England and the continent was not a victory for paganism. See, what happened here in this ugly, horrible situation by the choice of these Vikings to come and to raid God's people is that those who remained in Britain because it was Christianized and the women who were now married to these pagans, these pagans that stayed in England became Christians. And those who took the women back to to Scandinavia continued to worship Jesus Christ and influenced those who had taken them into slavery that within one generation the pagan Norsemen were converted to Christianity. Ugly is still ugly, bad is still bad. There's no way apart that. We're in a broken world and no matter what happens and we act in ugly ways, we're not trying to change that. We're not trying to say something that is bad is good. But what we are saying and what I am saying and what I think that this history event reminds us is that God is working out his purpose and his purpose is that people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will come to know him, to serve him, to worship him, and he is working that out. But in the ugliness of this broken world, it doesn't happen through asking people necessarily, have you heard the four spiritual laws? That happens but that's probably not what's happening throughout the world. It's probably not what is going to overrun the Middle East with the hope of the gospel. It's going to happen with sacrifice. We pray, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. We pray, Lord, use my life. And yet, if you're like me, you have to admit, I have my limits. What I mean is, I'm willing to be uncomfortable. I'm willing to go without air conditioning. I'll even sleep on the ground. But to lose my head, my life, my family, my country, my nation, so that God would be glorified, I'm hesitant. But that's what Habakkuk was facing, and Habakkuk resigned himself and experienced a transformation and peace because he realized God was greater and God is good and that if his life was to be yielded to God, it meant to trust what God is doing for God's glory, which is what God is doing. And that's what brought him the peace. It wasn't that he decided, oh, well, I don't care if my nation doesn't exist anymore. That's painful. It's horrible. But he had an opportunity that you and I have at this point in time, perhaps not being told what Habakkuk was, but many of us are fearing that, that our country, our culture, our, our, our freedoms are under in jeopardy. The question is... Is that the value of my life or is God's glory the value of my life? And we live in a time where we need to ask ourselves that question. And how you respond, whether in freedom or continued anxiety, is the answer to the question no matter what comes from my lips or comes from your lips. See, we need to see and we see from Habakkuk that we need to learn to live in light of the grand narrative God is working out his plan. And while he has a plan in your life and your part of life is valuable and important, your life, my life, this church's life, the church's life is part of that narrative. We need to see how our life is in line with the grand narrative and see it in light of the grand narrative and not see God's plan in line with our plan. It is hard, but it is necessary And when we are able to do that, to know who God is, because he's shown himself to be faithful and good, to value God's purposes and God's plans above our own, we have the peace that we long for and desire, and it's the only way we experience it. Let me finish with this little story. There's a story of a museum guide who would take his torp groups into the darkest room in the museum and then he would shine a light on this kind of mass of string and colors that just um, really nobody could make it out. But he would ask the group as this light was shining on it, what is this? Most of the group would respond, well that's what we were going to ask you. What is this? I have no idea what this is. And then, with the lights still down, he would tell them, Okay, I want you to move. Stand over there, move to your left. And he would move them, guiding them by, by his light until they were in the right place. And then he would slowly bring up the lights in the room. And when he brought the lights into the room, up in the room, the people were able to recognize that there was a, a beautiful tapestry that had been, I don't know, sewn, cross stitch, whatever you do to a tapestry. You can tell how my sophistication and art, but anyway, there was a, <laughs> there was a beautiful tapestry there that they were all amazed and in awe. And then it rec- they recognized that in order to get the picture, fully the tour guide gave them the picture in parts and in the dark and the contrast was even more stunning we are told time and again through the scriptures in our own experience our own knowledge unless we are the most narcissistic and arrogant of individuals we know that we only know partly and see things darkly but God sees things fully as they are and he's promised that one day you and I will see them as well but that day is not today. And so far as I know, it's not tomorrow. The promise is no less. The promise is real. But until then, we need the lesson of Habakkuk, which was summarized in chapter 2. It's that those who are the righteous, those called by the name of God, will walk by faith. We live by faith. Faith in the God who has demonstrated himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith in the promises that he has made. Faith that he is good, regardless of our circumstance and regardless of what happens to us immediately. God is good all the time. And as they say in the black churches and all the time, God is good. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have given us a real man in Habakkuk to show ourselves through him. Our passions, our fears, perhaps even... An expression of our faithfulness, and yet experiencing difficulty, hardship, suffering, and being transformed. Lord, I pray that you would transform us as well. We who know you in the person of Jesus Christ, that we would have peace as we trust in him and your purposes in him. Bless us, I pray for your glory, for our joy. We pray all in Jesus.